This, um, how many of you guys have met Adam Miller? Anyone? Anyone? Okay, so four of you. <laughs> hey, Adam is uh, a longtime friend and uh, has been... Uh, uh, I've ministered with him before we go to his church. His church's name, by the way, if you can say it, I have a tough time saying it. Ecclesia, right? That's pretty good. It's kind of a starter church. We've done worship for them, actually, a couple times. And uh, anyway, Adam's going to tell him a little bit more about yourself. Uh, Adam's going to tell you a little bit more about himself. And then I'm going to shut up and sit down. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Oh, man, it's good to see Rob in this kind of capacity. I first met Rob years ago. Gosh, close to 20 years. I don't know. Something like that. And this guy was a superstar. He was a leader of a band called Eyewitness. Was that it? Or I Got a Witness? Eyewitness. Yeah, I still have a cassette tape, bro, of that. Uh, break it out every once in a while. Eight, no, not eight track. Not eight track. Easy, easy. No, it's, uh, it's good. I, I, I have great memories of seeing Rob and Eyewitness perform uh, to college groups. And I have this one memory that just cracks me up that I got to tell. <laughs> But Rob, Rob was like a Bono in the making, man. He had it. He had the style. He, had, he was smooth up on stage. I just remember him jumping off stage and running down the aisles. Do you remember? It was great. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, yeah, I go way back with, uh, with some of these folks. I've known Dave Carlson. He's my brother's best friend, and, and uh, we go back, I don't know, 20 years or so. And in fact, I, I gave Dave a fat lip once, and, and we were tubing on a on a behind a boat, what do you call it, tubing, you call it tubing, <laughs> he was on top of me and we hit a wave, a wake and just I popped up and hit him right in the head and, and uh, blood all over the place, so good stuff, um, I, can't, I can't believe he's uh, getting another kid, to be honest, I, I know the Carlsons, they've got four great kids and uh, they like chaos, uh, I've, got, I've got four kids so I know what it's like and, and uh, I'm trying to go the other way, I'm trying to give a couple kids away, so I, just kidding, honey. Just kidding. I love my kids. So, hey, let me pray, and then I want to jump into the passage that was read earlier. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning with these great folks at Neighborhood Bible Church. And uh, God, as we open up the Bible today, and uh, we're reminded that you are our teacher, uh, and so guide us, guide our thoughts, guide our volition, our wills, and may we be careful to... uh, put into practice what we hear today. God, it is difficult. This is a difficult passage to, uh, to just listen to and not walk away changed. And so by your power, uh, by your spirit, I ask that you would teach us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, you know, sometimes in life there's things that are so big, but familiarity kind of makes you lose its significance. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, the pile of junk on the side of your house. You have good intentions to move that. It, it annoys you when you see it. And, but most of the time you don't notice it's there until you invite company over, right? And it's like, oh, big spot on the carpet. I remember this smell in my college dorm. And I thought, I will never get used to this smell. But after a little while, I didn't even know it was there. This passage reminds me of that. There are things about the Christian faith that are so big and so significant that sometimes its familiarity loses its impact on our lives. 
And so we're taking a look at Colossians chapter 1, and we're really going to be focusing in, if you have your Bibles, on chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And I call this message, Jesus is God. So what? And so this morning, I don't really want to spend a lot of time on focusing on the doctrine of the deity of Jesus, the doctrine of the Incarnation. That is foundational. It is the centerpiece of our faith. It is what distinguishes us from every other faith. Who is Jesus? The nature and character of the person of Jesus. It is vital to us. We need to grasp it. We cannot be in Christ if we do not grasp this and understand this. But I want to focus more so on why. What difference does it make in our lives in knowing and understanding the doctrine of the deity of Jesus? And so I want to take you a a little bit on a roller coaster ride. You guys like roller coasters? Okay, if you were in the first century and you're in Colossae, and this letter comes from Paul, and you're sitting in church and you're excited to get the new word uh, that Paul has written, guys, this is like a, a roller coaster with ups and downs and spins and hairpin turns. This is radical information. This is, uh, this is the kind of information that, that put a shockwave in the culture and the empire of the Romans that would eventually bring it down. And so, let's take a look. There's some key terms I want you to grasp and understand and get. And so, real quickly, I want to go through about six terms. And if you have an outline, I think it's in the bulletin, you're... Welcome to take notes. I apologize, I don't have any PowerPoint this morning, so we're going to go back in time a little bit and and go without all the technology. First of all, I I want to talk about the word image. Image, it comes from the word icon. And when, when Paul says here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he's talking about an exact representation, an exact replica. Jesus is, in essence, the copy of God. Today we might want to use the word photocopy. It's an exact representation. But it's different than when Moses said in Genesis that we were created in the image of God. You see, every living person was created in the image of God. But it's drastically different. Jesus was not created. He is the image of God. And so, God is invisible. How does God make Himself known? How does God make Himself seen? He makes Himself visible in Jesus. And He will build upon this idea. First, He's the image of the invisible God. And then He's the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn. This is a... a, a Often misunderstood, sometimes cults will take this word and say, look, Jesus was born. He was the firstborn. He was created. But in fact, the word can actually mean priority, not in terms of time or order. It can have more to do with being the primary one. In fact, that might be the best way to translate it. He is the primary one. He's the ranking one, the supreme one, the highest monarch. And so everything that had a beginning had its beginning in Jesus. And so therefore, Jesus could not have a beginning. Everything that was created was created in and by and through Jesus. And so Jesus therefore could not have been 
created. And so he's the firstborn over. It's a key word right there. Over. doesn't mean that he was born, but it means that he has priority in terms of rank and superiority. And then he'll go on and he'll say that, that Jesus is the head of the body. He's the head of the body. This is a more familiar term with us. He'll develop this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 much more in depth, talking about the body of Christ and how He's the head. But this, this idea of head, we might want to use the term CEO or owner or leader. Jesus is the head. And it has a, a great imagery of being the one who sustains, who provides, who, who guides His body. That is us, Christians. And so you're going through this roller coaster, you're going up and down, you're going through these loops, you're hitting these hairpin turns, and now we come to a big one. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Now guys, it, it's hard for us to grasp this. If you're a first century Christian and you're sitting in church and you're hearing this, guys, this is like revolutionary. It's rocking your world. And it's one of these things where you don't sit in church and go, that's nice. Jesus is the head of the body, the firstborn. God bless you. See you next week. Guys, this is revolutionary. This rocked people's worlds. Go back and think about what the world was like for Christians in the first century. Roman Empire, full of images, full of icons, full of structure and, and organization. And who is at the top? Who is at the pinnacle of the Roman Empire? Caesar. And Paul is using terms here that were used of Caesar very purposefully. Caesar was known as the image of God, the firstborn of all creation. He was the head of the state. And his empire was ruled. And, and there was peace dependent upon fitting into that structure. And so when Paul wrote this to the Colossians, and it's written in poetic form, this section, probably so it could be remembered well and easily. Man, it was, it was like a, a, a punch that put a shockwave through the empire that eventually bring down the entire Roman Empire. Guys, I think about what's going on in China right now. If you follow in the news and, and the Olympics and all that's going on, I, I get a, a, about a weekly, maybe bi-monthly newsletter from Voice of the Martyrs. I love to read those and, and pray for those people that are part of us in other parts of the world. And, and I, always, there's always something about something going on in China. And right now, because of the Olympics coming soon, uh, the, the government is putting a lot of pressure on the church. A lot of pressure on Christians. Think about the communist state and the icons and the images and, and what they do to produce peace and order in that land. Christianity is a threat. It's a threat to bring down the whole empire. The communist regime in China. And so this, this is powerful stuff. And guys, this has some significance for us too. Just because we live in the land of the home and the land of the free. Guys, we do not live in a culture. We do not live in a society where God is the focus. Where God is preeminent. Where God is supreme. I'm convinced of this in America that if, if Christians began to really put into practice what this says, what this book says, it would destroy our economy. It would change our lives radically. 
It's a scary thought to think about it, really. And so He is the firstborn of the dead. Again, this has nothing to do with time. Was Jesus the first to be raised from the dead? No, Jesus Himself rose people from the dead. There's people in the Old Testament that were risen from the dead. So it has nothing to do with time. It has nothing to do with order. Firstborn has to do with being the primary one, the preeminent one, whoever died and whoever was risen from the dead. And it also has some significance. Again, we're, we're going back in the first century. How could that which is divine come and take on human flesh and then die? That's blasphemy to an Old Testament Jew in some cases. And there was a whole cult that developed out of this that be, later became known as Gnosticism. And it was a separation of the flesh and of the spirit. And, and, and it was inconceivable to think that that which is divine and perfect could come and take on human flesh. And so Jesus was a hologram. He was an apparition that didn't leave footprints when he walked. But no, that's not what Paul says. No, this supreme one, this firstborn died and rose again. And then we come close to the climax of Paul is building. And we're, we're going to hit the last couple loops here. Don't lose it. All right. You know how you are on roller coasters, right? Uh, he says that he is supreme or preeminent. And this is to be first. This is the highest dignity. This is that there is no other in this category. There's no other one in this category that Jesus is in. And again, whether you are a Roman citizen, a Greek, a Gentile, to hear this is, is, is going to rock your world. How can we say this about Jesus? This is what they say about Caesar. I don't want to lose my job. And then the Jews... Oh, God, Jehovah, He's the Supreme One. How can you say this about Jesus? Only God is supreme. Only God is preeminent. So guys, this is, this is stuff that is so familiar to us now. But it ought to rock us a little bit. It ought to shake us up a little bit. And then he'll talk finally about fullness and how Jesus, it pleased the Father to put all the fullness of the Godhead in Jesus. Jesus is not only fully God, but God is fully in Jesus. And so this is significant stuff. This is powerful. This is the kind of thing that will rock your life. If you begin to understand. So that's really what I want to focus on for the rest of the morning here. Is what does this mean to you and I? That Jesus is God. What does it mean? What relevance is it to us? Two billion people in this world will say, yeah, I believe in the Trinity and the deity of Christ. I believe that He's God. But what difference is it making in our lives? And so I want to give you four things to think about. First one is that if Jesus is God, then there is a reordering. There's a reordering of our life. Number two, there is a relinquishing. Number three, there is a rejoicing. And number four, there's a renaming. And so let me kind of walk through each one of those with you. First, there is a reordering of our life. There's a reprioritizing. There's a restructuring of our life. If, if a huge truck crosses a small bridge, 
it's going to cause a bridge quake. If a huge man walks out onto thin ice, it's going to cause an ice quake. If Jesus comes into your life and Jesus is God, it's going to cause a life quake. It's going to shake things up. It's going to force you to reorganize, restructure, reorder your life. You see, the question is not, is Jesus preeminent? The question for us is, is He preeminent in your life? Is He preeminent for your life? You know, so many times we ask the wrong questions. Seekers who are looking to find meaning in their life, to find significance in their life, to get their life right with God, so many times ask the wrong questions. Maybe you've talked to someone and boy, I really like this Christian stuff, but do I really have to stop having sex with my girlfriend? Do you think God's going to make me go to Africa? I, these are the questions we ask. We wonder, what's, how's my life going to change? Is, is it going to mess it up? Yeah, it's going to mess it up. But guys, we have to think of it differently. Imagine you have a friend. And your friend has a terminal illness. You go to the hospital with them. The doctor diagnoses the the illness and says, you have no hope. You're dying. But I've got this pill. You take this and you will live a full life. Unless you get in a car accident or something. (laughs) Take this pill. But because of the compound and the chemicals of this pill, you can't eat chocolate. Ever. No more chocolate. No more chocolate. For some of you, no more Starbucks. Oh, there there I hit a nerve. Yeah, there I hit a nerve. And then your friend weighs the options. I can't give up Starbucks. No, I don't want the cure. Guys, that's the level of thinking. It is irrational. It is emotionally foolish. To ask those kinds of questions. If you believe Jesus is God, He's going to reorder your life. He's going to reprioritize it. We cannot know the absolute one if we absolutize anything. We cannot know the supreme one if we make anything else supreme in our life. Jesus cannot come into your life to round it out. To supplement it. To improve it. Jesus Himself said this, Not My will, but Yours be done. Number two, there's a relinquishing. If Jesus is God, then there is a relinquishing. That is a a letting go. A relinquishing your personal rights. It makes sense if He's God, right? It's an easy question. Who's God? God. So there's a battle here between you and God and me and God, right? A battle for who's going to be on the throne of our life. But you know what? I look at it differently. I look at it as an adventure. Any adventure, any explorer through history, they had to give up the stuff, right? They had to give up security. They had to give up safety. They had to give up comfort. Any adventure is like that. And nobody gave up more than Jesus. Perfect love. Perfect unity in the Godhead. 
angels 24-7 bowing and worshiping Him as God. And He gave it up. To become a baby? To become vulnerable? To become weak? To become dependent? And then to be abused and spit upon and slapped and eventually hung on a cross. Nobody gave up more than Jesus. You'll never outdo Jesus when it comes to giving up your rights. But what an adventure it was for God. No greater adventure. See, as Christians, we give up a lot. We give up stuff. We give up dreams. The dream retirement, the dream home, the dream for a nice life. We give up goals, financial goals, and and other things that are important to us. We give those up. If Jesus is God, we relinquish those. But you cannot see what Jesus did and want what this world has to offer. You cannot see what Jesus has done and want what this life has to offer. You see, the opposite is true. I expect to give things up. I don't expect to have the life that others have. I don't expect to drive the car that others drive. And you guys see, Jesus is our example. But He's more than an example. He's more than that. He invites us to enter into His adventure, His story. Because now you want to make a difference. Now you want to go to Africa. Now you want to give up rights. Now you want to give so that you can receive what's greater and what's lasting. It's disruptive. It's inconvenient. It's costly. But let me ask you, are you out for an adventure? Are you out for just a nice life? Christianity is revolutionary. It did not subvert the empire of Romans because Christians were nice and polite. That doesn't create a revolution. Number three, there is a rejoicing. There is a rejoicing. Guys, you will make sacrifices. You will give up things. But there is a benefit. There is a reward for giving up the temporary for the eternal. How did Jesus face what He faced? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 reminds us, for the joy set before Him. He endured the cross despising the shame The shame and the humility meant little to Him because of what the results would be, because of what it would produce for you and I. And that's how we need to begin to think about life. Yes, we will give things up, but Jesus did this without ever complaining. He didn't grumble. He didn't feel sorry for Himself. And as Christians, that is what we are called to as well. Yes, we make sacrifices. Yes, we give up. Yes, we relinquish and reorder. But we do it with joy. Not because of 
present rewards because of future blessings. Mark chapter 10, verse 29 says this. Jesus replied, I assure you that anyone who has ever given up a house or ever given up brothers or sisters or a mother or a father or children or property for my sake and for the kingdom and the good news. Listen to what he says. He will receive now in return a hundred times over. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and property with. Don't miss this persecutions. Some of you will give up marriage sooner than you had hoped. Some of you will give up climbing the corporate ladder. Some of you will give up that retirement house on the lake. Some of you will give up dreams and goals and, and the perfect figure or whatever it is. You will give up things, but there will be rejoicing because of the reward that God will give you. And more than that, more than just the reward and the blessings that He will give us, He will give us the greatest thing of all, Himself. And that's what God did when He became a man. He gave us Himself. What greater treasure is there in the universe than for God to give us Himself? What a beautiful and precious gift. And so there is reason to rejoice. But if Jesus is God, then there is also a renaming. There is also a renaming. Think about what names you. These are the things that in life, in our life, in our culture, make us who we are and feel good about who we are. Maybe it's a job or a career. It names you. You're successful at it, but it names you. Children. Your children name you. Your significance is wrapped up in it. Maybe it's property. Maybe it's finances. Maybe it's failures. Maybe you have a past that you are ashamed of and those failures name you. And when you look in the mirror, you see a defeated one. You see a failure because those have named you. Maybe it's a position. Maybe it's your looks. But it's something. But when Jesus invades our life and when He rocks our world, He renames us. He calls us rescued ones, moving us from darkness to light. He calls us His beloved. He calls us forgiven. He calls us reconciled. He calls us redeemed. He says we are holy in His sight without blemish, and free from accusation. What names you? Is it Christ and His redemptive work in your life? Or is it what your boss thinks, or what your parents think, what your children think about you? We are chosen. We are set free. I love to take my fifth grade daughter and, and my three and a half year old daughter and I grab them by the face and I put it up to mine and I say, you are beautifully and wonderfully made. I want them to be named by what God thinks of them. 
Not what the culture pressures them into. And it's the same for us. We need to, we need to have God kind of grab us by the scruff of the neck and pull it to His and say, I love you. I name you. You're holy. You're precious. You're mine. And so there is a reordering, there is a relinquishing, there is a rejoicing, and there is a renaming. These are the significant things that are wrapped around this beautiful and ancient doctrine of the deity of Jesus. He is God. But when you walk out these doors, what difference does it make in your life? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to... Look into this beautiful and amazing passage. The one who was invisible became visible in Jesus. And God, we stand before you, we sit before you desperate and bankrupt without you bringing significance and meaning into our lives. You are the center. Of the universe. And I pray, God, that we would be able to relinquish what we think is important so that you may be the center of our life. Whatever that means, whatever that leads to, I pray we would be willing, as Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. In Jesus' name.